We come to a section of Scripture that has a lot of chapters. In fact, it begins in Joshua chapter 13 and goes through chapter 22. So right there together in your families or perhaps in your lighthouses there, we maybe have your son or your daughter in your lap, or you're sitting close to each other. Let's make sure everyone can see those ten chapters, would you? Just kind of maybe take your Bibles, find Joshua chapter 13 and then find Joshua 22 and maybe kind of cup the fingers in your hand somehow, kind of like this right there. And be ready to turn quickly because we're going to take somewhat of an interactive quiz. And this quiz will kind of be a journey through the distribution of the promised land to the 12 tribes. And I want to ask for all of your help. So if you're a child, if you're a second grader, a a seventh grader, if you're a mom or a dad, if you're a a single person, a senior citizen, a newly married or engaged, I'm going to probably have lots of ways to engage you and ask for your help. So have Joshua 13 through 22 ready. And as you're finding that and getting those pages ready, I just want to encourage you and, and remind you of what this might have looked like. You know, what they're doing in these chapters is they are distributing the promised land. It was about the size of Maryland. If you're wondering how much room this was and, and how much land they had overtaken, it was a, a, a land about the size of Maryland. And they were now, Joshua was charged with dividing it up or allotting to each tribe their specific part of the promised land. Now, don't ever underestimate how difficult this might have been. Because, uh, And to give you a picture of that, if you were a part of our angel food distribution yesterday, or you've been a part of it any time in the past few months, just kind of slip your hand up, would you? If you're kind of part of that distribution, you know what it's like to go there, and you've got yesterday 47 families were part of that, uh, were receiving food through Angel Food Ministries, and it's a great uh, um, opportunity to to get some really good groceries, and, and we help some needy families throughout that as well. And it takes a lot of volunteers. But that's just 47 families. They go to the office, they set up their tables in the basement, they have runners up and down the steps, they have folks with the cars, they have drivers who take certain foods over to certain apartments where elderly folks are. It's a pretty good operation. It takes a lot of volunteers just to get 47 Boxes of food to people in our neighborhood and our church. Imagine if you had to distribute a state. I mean, that many acres to 12 tribes, well over 2 million people. Sometimes we read these chapters and we think, oh, it all makes sense, it was easy. I think we underestimate the mammoth task that not only conquering the land was, but now distributing it. And uh, you'll find that in these chapters they did it in a couple of ways. The first way, of course, was just through the elders and Joshua and the Lord's direction. As they moved the tent to Shiloh in chapter 18, they then had uh, three folks from each tribe take surveys. So they did it in various ways, which is cool because it lets us know that even in the same operation, you can kind of change your methods throughout the course of that and still be okay. Amen. It's okay to change your methods when you're involved in, in a massive project. Are you with me, church? Amen. Are you, are you following me here? I look at this group here and I'm like, man, this is a far cry from Neblin in 2004. Are you with me? Now, both are good. Never minimize small beginnings. Amen? I mean, God brought together a band of people in 2004 that, that man, that were just their hearts were, were set on the Lord like our hearts are today. But this is a different operation than 60 to 80 to 90 people in 2004. Are you with me? And it's okay to adjust and adapt and change to meet the needs of the people. And I think that's something we see in this chapter. Now, as we think about the land and how they distributed the land, let's take a quiz because I want to show you a map. 
And we're going to kind of just go down this chapter by chapter. Here's the 12 tribes of Israel. It is kind of hard to see because it's a, it's a lot of tribes to get into this. But I want to ask you some questions. And if this applies to you, and if you can answer it, you just find the scriptures that I'll call out and you let me know which tribe we're talking about in these scriptures. Are you with me? So you got a little bit of Bible search going on here. You know, it shouldn't be real difficult. I like open book tests. Amen. That's what you got today. You got an open book test. Let's do this first. Let's start with our church leadership. An elder, a deacon, a, one of our staff members, their families, whatever. Let's uh, lead the way, guys. And let's ask this question. In, Gen- uh, in Joshua chapter 13, somewhere between verses 15 and 23. Everyone start turning there. Joshua 13, 15 through 23. An elder, deacon, staff member, family, someone from those, uh, those tribes, shall we say. Who's the person allotted land in this passage? Reuben, great. Excellent. So we'll flash Reuben up there and you can kind of see he's in the lower right corner. I'm not sure how well you can see that, but uh, and if you're really talented, you want to draw this map on your teaching tool, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? If so, you need to go into topography, I'm telling you, and be a map drawer. But here's Reuben. He gets the first allotment. Our next person who got an allotment is in uh, Joshua 13, beginning about verse 24. How about someone who is single? A single person who can... Gad, exactly right. Gad's the next person who gets an allotment. And there you see it right above Reuben. Next we have the uh, half of a tribe in Joshua 13, about verse 29. Just a couple of verses here. How about a family from the northeast side of town? Manasseh. Excellent. Manasseh. And also you'll see that Manasseh had he was the only tribe. Notice that map up here. He was the only tribe that actually had uh, a land that was split by the Jordan River. You see the line right down the middle? Half of them went back across, of course, on the east side of the river and stayed there after they fought the battles. And the other half, of course, was on the west side. The only tribe to have land on both sides of the river. Let's take a father and son who will look in Joshua chapter 15. Uh, about these first 63 verses. Who's given land in Joshua 15? A father and a son. Just They're sitting there together and you want to shout out the name of this... Judah, exactly right. Way to go, Michael. Judah is the person. And by the way, what great Savior came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ. Remember the Old Testament prophecy? The Lion of the tribe of Judah, a son of David. This is the tribe, and they were allotted land right there just uh, west of Reuben. Now notice in Judah, of course, is where uh, Jerusalem was. And that's the territory they were given, the capital city of the promised land. Let's keep moving here. How about uh, a lighthouse? Maybe you're sitting together, maybe you're not, but you, you know you're a lighthouse in the northwest part of our town. If you look at Joshua 16 through about chapter 17, verse 18, a good bit of scripture here. How about someone in a lighthouse in the northwest part of town? Tell me what tribe was given land in this section of scripture. Joshua 16 through about the end of chapter 17 or verse 18 of chapter 17. A lighthouse from the northwest side of town. I'm waiting for a taker. Ephraim, good job. You can say Ephraim or Ephraim or Ephraim. It doesn't matter. We're, none of us are scholars on, on how to pronounce names in the Old Testament. That's for sure. This Ephraim tribe. Now, now watch this, guys. Ephraim and Manasseh are not actually two of Jacob's sons. Hey, kids, did you catch that? We learn about Jacob's sons, but actually Ephraim and Manasseh were whose sons? Not Jacob's, but Joseph's sons that he had in Egypt. But because Levi was made the 
take a caretaker of the temple, and because Joseph actually had his land given to his two sons, God kind of replaced or substituted Joseph's two sons for Levi and Joseph. So you still end up with 12 allotments, which is kind of cool. So God, even in all the different times in the past and the ways He'll work things, God had a way of making sure the land was distributed evenly. We move now to Joshua chapter 18. Turn there. I love to hear those pages turning. That's good. Families are looking at their Bibles together and mothers and daughters and lighthouses. That's excellent. Joshua chapter 18, about verse 11, we read about the sixth allotment of land. And what, uh, what last born son does this speak of? Benjamin. Benjamin. Good job. And I was going to ask for someone who was the last born in their family to do that, and I missed my notes. But, you know, Benjamin was the final one born, wasn't he? He was somewhat, even apart from Joseph, kind of the favored one. Let's look further. Joshua chapter 19, the first nine verses. How about a mom and a daughter sitting together this morning? In Joshua 19, the first nine verses, what tribe is a lot of land now? Simeon. Excellent. And so they're given land as well, and you can see where they are on the map in the southern port, uh, portion of the promised land. So I really like Judah and Simeon and Reuben. You know, they're in the southern portion of the promised land. Hint, hint. Just a little humor there for you, people. Let's keep moving. Uh, Joshua chapter 19, verses 10 through 16. How about a family from the central part of Ankeny? What we call Uptown Ankeny. You live in that part of our city. What tribe is mentioned here in Joshua chapter 19, about verses um, uh, 10 through 16? Zebulun. Good. And by the way, it's Zebulun. I noticed this week it's Zebulun. Not Zebulun. I always thought it was Zebulun. Did you know that? But really, the biblical name is Zebulun, L-U-N at the end. I didn't know that. Let's move on. Joshua chapter 19, about verses 17 through 23. And they go kind of quickly here now. They've moved the the camp over to um, Shiloh, so that's where they started their new procedures. And here in these verses, how about an engaged couple? An engaged couple in our church can tell you which tribe is allotted land here in Joshua 19, 17 through 23. We don't have many of these, so I'm anxious to hear who jumps up and takes it. It's the car. Did you know that Bob? He's engaged, Bob and Emily. I didn't know that either, but way to go, man. I like him speaking up, though. That's good. It's the car, a lot of land in this, uh, in this portion of Scripture. Joshua 19, 24 to 31. How about a family that lives in the southeast part of Ankeny? If you live in the southeast part of Ankeny, what tribe is a lot of land here in Joshua 19, beginning about verse 24? Asher. And you can notice again on the map how the land is gradually being given over. Let's look at uh, just one more here, and that's the last portion of Joshua 19, verses 40 through 48. How about a family with two or more boys? If you've got at least two boys in your family, Dan. Excellent. Now watch this, guys. There's the 12 tribes and the 12 divisions of land. Now we did that in about five minutes. It probably took the Israelites... And we have no scriptural record. This is strictly um, speculation. But most scholars believe it took them an additional ten years to really possess the land. Now, from last week's message, how long did it take to conquer the land militarily? About seven or eight, yeah. Now, we don't know for sure it was ten, but based on some things from scholars in history and some of their artifacts and discoveries, which most of them believe Joshua was older than Caleb, and how it took time for these guys to go into land. And, and you know, some of these tribes, 
um, didn't drive out all the inhabitants, and some made fun of them slaves, and some did things that took a lot of time, and there was land that still had the trees and the hill country, and, and they were involved in, in lots of uh, setting up cities. Ten years is probably about what it took. That's a lot of time. So as you read these chapters, you think about them in your lighthouses, among your, uh, and your family at the dinner table. It's easy to look at that and say, wow, just, just go, you know, have a seat and enjoy your land. But this was a, a very big process. So the land was divided. Here are the twelve tribes. And they're now responsible to stake their claim. To say, this land is our land. Now watch something, guys. The battle had already been won. Militarily, the Israelites had control of that entire region. Are you with me? But it still took the people, the individual tribes, going into the land and saying, Hey, if there's anybody still hiding out in the rocks, if there's anybody still ducking in behind the trees, by the way, we're here to stake our claim. We've won the right to it, and now we're going to take it and live here. And that's what they did in these chapters. They, they went and they actually got on site, shall we say. And there's lots of really neat stories in these ten chapters. There's the story of Caleb in Joshua 14 and 15. You recall Caleb, don't you? In fact, did you know he was the only one in these ten chapters to make his claim, watch this, personal. He said, I want the hill country. I learned something from that. Staking your claim must first of all, listen very carefully, be personal. Now, although Caleb may have been the only one who actually said, give me the hill country, because remember, he had been given land already, hadn't he? He was one of the only two spies that survived the wilderness wanderings. But he wasn't content any longer just with perhaps what he had been given. He came to Joshua and said, Joshua, man, the low-level lands are fine, but, but I want some more. And there's almost this, and I'll use this word here, it's an oxymoron, but it's almost this godly greed. There's almost this sense of holy ambition that Joshua, man, I'm still as vigorous as I was when, when we came out of the wilderness. I'm still thirsty for more of God. Give me more than just the low-level lands. Give me the hill country. As a boy, we heard it said like this, give me the mountain. And Caleb wanted more than just, just the, the normal and the average. He made his stake, uh, his claim to victory, he made it personal. And other tribes did this as well as groups. They had to go into their land and occupy it and take it over and, and till it and grow it and build upon it. In fact, in one part of Joshua, I believe it's chapter 18, he actually says to these, I think it's about seven tribes remaining, he says, why do you wait so long to get the land that's yours? Now let me just kind of pause here for a few moments and, and talk to every single person here about making victories personal. One of the things that can happen in a Christian home, in a church that's growing, that's experiencing the real favor of God, in a group of friends that's really thirsty for the Lord, one thing that's going to happen is you begin to take refuge and shelter in the atmosphere of the group. Are you with me? You can kind of rest on the laurels of those around you. I can't tell you the kids I've run into that they're not really thirsty for the Lord, but they're sure glad their parents were. Are you listening to me? 
Because a good, godly parent makes for an awesome home. They're not too hip on the, the way of righteousness, but they're glad their parents were because it made a nice home. You know what? That's not personal victory. That's just benefiting from someone else's victory. And while that may be good at times, and while that, that may help our children, the goal of every parent is not to raise some kid who's well-educated only, or who's well-equipped to get a job. We want to raise godly children, are you with me? Who love the Lord their God. Who, who one day say, you know what, Mom and Dad, I see the way you've lived, and now I embrace that as my own personal lifestyle. And then they leave the nest. When they're launched out, they own their faith. Amen? See, victories have got to be personal. Victories have got to be personal. I think about that in our church even. You may attend here, and it may be 8.30 or 10.30. Today it was 10.30 for everybody, wasn't it? It may be a different service. You may be checking things out, and you've heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard how, how the gospel is the only way to heaven. And perhaps in your own private time you've been home, and you've... You've searched the Bible you found and, and you saw that the Bible does actually say and it teaches that the only way to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're in your mind thinking, that's not what I was told as a young person. That's not what my parents told me. That's not what I heard in this church I attended. And, and you've been wrestling these thoughts and you've come to a place now where you're saying, you know what? Either I believe the Bible and embrace the gospel as true or, or I need to just say, you know what? I don't believe. And you're at a crossroads. Can I say to you this morning... This is the best time to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and make it personal. I know you're enjoying a good church. You come and you kind of like the friendliness of it and you like the benefits of it. That's great. But guess what? Going to a good church, being part of a neat group of friends, doesn't get you to heaven. Only one thing gets you to heaven is when you personally embrace the gospel. You repent of your sin and you believe that Jesus Christ is the only name by which men can be saved. At that point, we're saved. Not a minute sooner. Can I ask you a question this morning? Has every single person in this room this morning made their faith personal? That's how you, that's how you stake your claim. It does stem from watching other people. We enjoy how the benefits of others' victories helps us. But the truth is, at some point, you have to, to make your victory personal and claim it. And what's cool is, just like Joshua and the military, they had won the battle, and so now the people had to go claim it. Guess what? Jesus Christ has won the battle. He has already conquered all of our enemies. It's up to us now to go and, and live in light of victory. To claim victory. To stake our claim on what He's already done. A lot of us don't think that way. I challenge you on Victory Sunday to start thinking in the past in a good way. God's already won and I will live in the victory God's already given. And if that means this morning that you need to come to faith in Christ and believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, I invite you this morning... To do something I did when I was 14. What a number of folks in this room have done in the last three or four years. They simply just said, Lord, I do believe that you are the only way to heaven. They've repented of their sin. They've done a U-turn. They've been going this way. They've turned and said, I believe. And the Bible teaches that when our hearts cry out to God in belief...
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and was buried, was died, was buried, and rose again. At that moment, we're saved. And this morning, right there in your seat, you can simply cry out to the Lord for Him to save your soul. A prayer like this is is one that I believe shows the heart of repentance. And in fact, right now in your seat, you might even be praying this: Say, Lord Jesus. I know my sin only takes me one direction, and that's the wrong way. And the end of my sin left un- unforgiven is hell. But God, I do believe that Jesus Christ came and He died and He was buried and He rose again for the forgiveness of my sin. And I personally believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, as the way to heaven. Just say that to God right now. Just let your heart cry out to the Lord. And in that moment, God moves from the the realms of heaven and changes the heart of a single individual. That's where our victory is. So I trust this morning that at least in that way you've made it personal. And in other ways as well. But real victories are personal. Amen? We see that in in these ten chapters. People had to go and occupy and claim and and do their part. I know something else as as this year this will be done. These victories were perpetual. What I like about this word is that it shows that a victory wasn't short-lived. It wasn't just for the here and now. And it wasn't based in selfishness. Well, well, hey, Joshua gave us his land. I'll do whatever's best so it's, it's good for me right now. The victory of these twelve tribes is they possessed their land. It was good for their children. Are you with me, church? They did things and, and acted in ways so that their children benefited, especially Caleb. Caleb's a good example of this as well. In fact, you know, Caleb's son-in-law became a judge later. He saw in Caleb apparently this real thirst and passion for God. His name was Othniel. He married one of Caleb's daughters. In fact, when they were given their portion of Judah, they weren't content with that either. They came back and said, hey, and the daughter said, hey, Dad, can I have more than just the part you've given me? And Caleb gave her some springs. The, the Kind of the, the passion for the Lord really just kind of uh, trickled on down. They owned it, and later on, Othniel became one of the judges of Israel. You find in Caleb this perpetual passion for the Lord. And I believe that real victories, when you stake your claim to overcome an addiction, to end a chain that may be present in your family for generations... To, to let the Lord break a habit. Or to start a new way of doing things in your family. It could be a number of ways you word this. When you say, God, you've given this victory through your Son, and I will live in light of that from this day forward. You're doing something that's not just personal. You're doing something that hopefully is perpetual. And you're enabling your children, and think with me, guys, your children's children, to live in, in, in victory. You're helping them pursue something that that will go on for generations. I've tried to express this at times in this way. It's very difficult to talk about because I don't know how to say it real well. But um, my grandfather, we call him Pop. I don't know what kids, I don't know what you call your grandparents. We call ours Pop. My dad's dad. But we talk a lot about how his legacy really lives on. And you can kind of spot Pop's tendencies in my dad. And now I've noticed that my kids and my uh, parents are spotting Pop's tendencies in me. And they laugh about those. And we've even said lately, it's funny, we can spot some of Pop's tendencies in Brett. And we've been kind of joking about how these, these certain passions that, that 
seemed to have gotten started way back in our family, just kind of keep coming through. And I don't know how that happens, but I'll tell you. If you were to ask me and my father both, both about, about certain things that we believe and feel, we'd go back to a guy named Pop who just took a real stand on some things in his family and ways about victory. And I tell you, I don't know how to explain it, but somehow those, those, I don't know if it's genetic or if it's atmospheric, but somehow those things just kind of stick with us. And there are certain traits inborn, it seems like, in the men of the Styles family that I'm not sure they're always great, but they could be great. And I'm just thankful that years and decades ago, there was a group of Styles somewhere, some men somewhere, who decided there was a, going to be a heritage that was going to be more than just average. And they began a really good legacy. I'm thankful to God every day. And that's why I keep my grandfather's Bible on my desk at home. Just keep it open. It's old and beat up. It's all worn out. I keep pictures of my, my dad and my son. They're sitting together. And my grandfather, he's dead now. But those things are prominent. You know why? Because we want to leave more than just uh, money to our kids. We want to leave a heritage and a legacy. Are you with me? A perpetual victory. And you know, the truth is, that's really what your victory markers are all about. I've got mine right here. They're about things and, and relationships and situations that you suddenly are making personal. I hope you brought yours with you today. Now, you may be feeling a little odd right now, thinking, man, I, he's going to call me forward. Well, relax. Just relax, Okay. I'm not here to make anybody feel uncomfortable. I promise you that. I do want to encourage you, though, to make your victory personal and perpetual. Some things, my three that I've been journaling with, one involves relationships outside of my family. One involves finances. And one involves relationships in my family. You know, I just really pray that God will allow these victories to settle deep inside our our children so that maybe they won't struggle quite as deeply with the things that I did or perhaps that Julie does. You know what I'm saying? To make it personal and perpetual. They've got to deal with their own stuff, granted. But man, to to raise them and build a home in such a way that, that maybe they're just a little further ahead or a step along. To launch them towards a life of victory as well. I don't know what yours are. But I encourage you to, when you write on your victory markers, to make them personal and perpetual. That's really how you stake your claim. And these ten chapters in Joshua are great examples. And we looked at them very briefly. And we kind of shot through them in a hurry. But they're good examples of how the children of Israel personally took it upon themselves to, to go after land that was already won, and then they continued to do what was right so their children could inherit the land. And by the way, if you don't think that perpetual victory matters, just go to the Middle East today and see what all the battles are over. It's over the issue of land and the rights to things that they, should, they won a long time ago. Are you with me? Is your victory personal and perpetual? And have you staked your claim on what God's already done? I trust that you have. I want you to meet two people that, that, that have won a couple of victories lately. And then we're going to have our processional encourage you to follow uh, your leaders as they lay their victory markers down, and then we'll be done today. I want you to meet uh, John and Brandy Dawson. Can you guys join me up here for a minute, just up front? I'm going to give you a mic here. John and Brandy have won some really good victories over the last month and a half. I'll let you guys share that mic. Is that okay? I'll just kind of stand up. There we go.
Um, yeah, that's all. We're ready to go. I don't, I don't. I'm not gonna say a whole lot of diesel. This is John and Brandy Dawson. A lot of you probably know them. They're in the Pitts' lighthouse. Uh, they live in Colfax. Is that right? And uh, it's been a really uh, good month and a half. A good 50 days for you guys. I know. Um, when it first started, um, they indicated to me and said, "Todd, we really want to talk to someone. We we got some things we really want to, some victory on." So we started meeting. And uh, last Thursday as we were talking, they shared some of the neatest stories. That for me, I was like, you know what? You guys have come a long way. Now I want to say something to you. Just like myself, and just like all of you, no one's out of the water totally. I mean, we all struggle at times. We're all still making progress. But man, you guys, from what you told me last Thursday, there's been some neat progress in some things. And I want to start with you, John. I know that for you, at some point in these last few days, you seem to run a real battle of your heart. You seem to win a victory inside about you and the Lord. You want to tell us about that just briefly, if you can, just for a moment? I think it was a sermon on battling your AI. And uh, for me, it was a big pride. I always kept stuff in. Never want anybody else to know problems that we were having or I was having or finances, nothing. I was like, I didn't let the Lord know it. I, I'm a man. I can handle it. And reading last Sunday, I reread it I don't know how many times. And I really want a battle that I can trust God. Opened up to Todd, opened up to the elders, the deacons, our lighthouse. And God showed me through that that, hey, I'm bigger than you. <laughs> you need to trust me. You can't do it on your own. That's been a real big victory. You know, one of the things that, one of the things that John mentioned to me last Thursday was he said, Todd, I've been rereading. Every week, some things in Joshua. Now, he'll tell you he's not a reader. I hear that from a lot of guys. But yet he realized, I can either keep saying I'm not a reader, or I can just find a way to read. And you know, I think it's interesting, John, that as you have meditated on the Scriptures, as you have read more of the Word, God has brought more victory your way. Perhaps the line, and I'm going to take a little chance here, but I love chances. Perhaps the line, I'm not a reader, may be a false thought from the enemy to keep you out of the Word. And so we're just kept about a step or two away from victory sometimes. But John, I'm proud of you for making this book. And he wasn't under assignment. It wasn't like, you better read or you're not going to get to come back and talk. You know what I mean? He just in his heart, he's like, man, I'm, God, I've got to know. And so he kept reading. And you know what? He's now battling former things that beat him. He's battling a different way. He comes home a different way, don't you? You do things differently at home now. And that way, the same things that used to defeat us, they're not beating you like they used to, are they? Now, now I won't go into a lot of detail there, but I'll tell you, it's made a big difference with Brandy. And Brandy, why don't you just share how John's victories in his heart with God and this Word and saying, Lord, I'm going to, you call the shot. Like he's, he's bigger. How has that suddenly brought you to places of victory in a, maybe a quicker pace? Well, for a long time, I felt like that I was... Um trying to carry our family um, through a lot of things with God. Um, And I had asked, we had talked to John and I had said, or Todd, sorry. We had talked to Todd and I had um, just expressed how I was really nervous about um, John's relationship with God. And after I brought that up, um, John really took a step and it really helped me because the burden was lifted off my shoulder. And... um, our marriage has improved tremendously because we we're having a lot of difficulties. And just since he had took the step um, to be the leader of me, um, 
and to just trust God in our family. It's really helped tremendously in our life and in our finances and um, and just even in our children. Um, we are having a lot of difficulties with our children and their attitudes. And just this last week, they have just been wonderful and um, just very respectful. And John and I's love for each other has changed tremendously just by him taking this step towards God and just trusting Him with our lives. You know, as, as she shares, one of the things that we talked about, one of the things that we kept coming back to was, I, I talked to him, I said, John, as you lead effectively and love your wife sacrificially, she will come under your authority and your leadership in a way not out of uh, half to her rebellion, but women love to feel secure. They want to know, man, he's taken care of me. And as John began to really implement a lot of these victory things, she came up under him in a very submissive way because she wanted to. And suddenly, a month ago, they were they came and they said, we just fight a lot. Last Thursday, she said, I don't remember when we last fought. And I, when I heard that, I was like, you hear what you just told me? And John said, yeah, I just heard that. And we're laughing. And it's because suddenly he's accepting his God-given role and she's willingly embracing hers. And you know what? God just knows how to give people victory. His plan, His battle plan works. And I want you guys to know, I mean, we're, we're all kind of in this. I'm with you. I mean, no marriage is perfect. and No one's got it down pat. But to hear you say, man, we're further along in our marriage. And, and how your kids have responded to your relationship now. How they're modeling that a little bit. I just want to say I'm really proud of you guys. And thank you. And by the way, I did check with them before I brought them up. I just want you to know that. I know some of you think I might embarrass you a little too much at times. But I called and we talked about it. And uh, I just want to appreciate, I appreciate both of you being willing to say. And you didn't expect anyone to do it for you. I think that's one of the neatest thing to me was at some point John just had to wrestle with making this personal. It's up to him. God's already won it. And what will you do because of that? And then that affected his wife and his kids. And I see they've got their victory markers. And I've got mine. And you know what? Together, if just family after family, person after person, can just say, Lord, I know you've won this victory. Now, I will live in light of that. I will not allow the enemy to plant false thoughts, false techniques, or wrong strategies. I'll trust the Word. And I'll trust God. Man, imagine this multiplied by a hundred. The power that God could, could bring to a church committed to living a life of victory. Amen. John and Brandy, thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate your personal illustration of, uh, of this concept. I want to close this in prayer. I just want to ask you this morning to, to take a few moments as we come in, in, the, in the end of this message and to bring with you in a few moments have you walk to the front in what we're calling a victory processional. We're going to have a, an, a, a video behind us. It'll be a chance for you to celebrate the victory of God. I'm going to ask our church leadership to start the way. They should always model what's expected. So if you're part of our, our leadership team in any way, I mean, just, just make your way here. I want to encourage you to drop your victory offerings um, in the baskets, lay, lay your victory marker somewhere on the stage. You say, Todd, well, well, they're going to know what I wrote. They might. But if it's a victory, what are you worried about? Hallelujah. Amen. I just want to praise the Lord for the way He's given victory in our family. I trust for you too. And you know, if you've got a decision to make this morning, even while the music's playing, people are coming to the front and they're walking back to their seats, we'll be down in the front. Man, just, just grab us by the arm and tap us on the shoulder and say, I want to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. 
Maybe this morning, while I showed you that simple prayer to pray, you said, Todd, I prayed that this morning. There's a feedback card in your worship report. Just jot your name on there and put on there, I prayed to receive Christ. I'll call you. One of our staff will call you this week. But don't let the enemy steal a victory. And what a great time we're entering into here when we can brag on the Lord. Amen. Lay down our victory offering just as we're trusting Him for what's ahead for our church's future. Also lay down our victory markers and the ways that God has given us victory. If some of you perhaps are visiting today, don't feel any pressure by this. You're not going to be looked at weird if you stay in your seat. I promise you. We've been kind of preparing for this as a church for about 50 days. If you're a guest, please, don't feel odd. Just know that you're looking at a church that really believes in the power of the Lord over addictions and habits and situations and tendencies. Amen? And so just rejoice in that. Don't feel pressure. And uh, if you happen to be a, uh, an attender here and you forgot your marker, there's some in the bulletin. I just want our church to rejoice for a few minutes in the great God that we serve. And let's live that out by how we give, not just financially, but also in these. And you know, I hope one day, maybe in 10 or 15 years, we can look back and we can see maybe where you know, someone wrote about a, a victory. And we can say, wow, I can see how they won that back then because look at them now. And we'll see how God has done some miraculous things starting in these 50 days. Can I pray with you? Then we'll start our victory processional.